At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, Series 1, Episode 3, Flies. I'm going to define flies. I'll explain what I think are realistic versus impressionistic patterns, your needs as an angler, how you'll be purchasing flies and what you will encounter as a consumer. I'll talk about hooks, fly names, fly categories, fly properties, how to fish your flies, maintaining and storing your flies, and then I'll give you more information. And of course, you can find more information at robsnowwhite.com. That's Snow White with one W. Flies represent various stages of an organism's life cycle, from egg to adult, and should be fished as each stage would naturally act in the wild. From emerging nymphs swimming to the surface, bait fish darting around, crayfish trying to hide in rocks, fish eggs bouncing along the bottom, beetles crashing into the water, mice or other small mammals falling in, dragonflies laying their eggs, or spent mayflies floating downstream. I like to categorize flies as Monet's versus Rembrandt's, those that are impressionistic versus those that are realistic. If you remember art history, Monet very splotchy, hard to visualize pictures. Rembrandt had very detail-oriented paintings. Some flies are tied with a realistic detail, which includes anatomical body parts down to the minute detail. Some body parts are static and do not suggest movement, such as fluttering wings or swimming legs. Some flies are tied to be a mere impression of an insect with the outline and form of the food item without the detail. Some flies are tied to be a generic representation of an organism, not an exact duplicate, and we'll call those attractor patterns. 
They do not imitate a single particular organism, but suggest a variety. Some flies are tied to agitated fish into striking. Fish don't have hands, so they can't move something out of the way if it's in front of them with their hands, like you and I would. They use their mouth. An example, salmon. Now you have to remember that fish don't have hands. They have pectoral fins. So what we would do with our hands, they have to do with their mouth. So if something's in front of them that's aggravating them, they don't have the option of moving it away with their hands. They have to bite it to move it. An analogy, if you're in a bar and there's a guy who's picking up a girl at the bar and you keep bothering him, he's going to punch you. Why? Because he has hands. Fish don't have hands. Now maybe this guy doesn't have hands and then he would bite you. Some patterns can be extremely intricate and time-consuming to produce. A gentleman at one of my Trot Unlimited meetings once told a story of how he tried to tie a salmon fly and it took 24 hours plus of just time building that pattern. Patterns that intricate may not be used to fish. They may be used for display purposes. Some people know they're going to lose their flies in trees and on rocks and they may not invest too much time in tying those. While others you might purchase with the intent that you know you're going to lose them. So you might not want to be purchasing the most expensive flies for where you're going. I'm now going to talk about your needs as an angler with the flies you're purchasing or tying yourself. Are you trying to match a hatch with a specific pattern? Do you want your fly to be an exact representation of a specific organism or species from its size, shape, and color exactly? Or do you want your fly to be a generic representation or a suggestion of a food item generally eaten by the fish you are targeting during that time of the year, that time of the day, etc.? Are you casting to feeding fish or throwing to a fish you can see? We call that sight casting. Are you blind casting, which means you are casting in the general direction of an area which you may find fishy or possibly holding fish, and you're going to throw your fly in that area hoping to draw a strike. Do you know how the natural fly acts and behaves in the water? Where does it naturally occur from water depths, currents, etc.? What about the color of its background? Do you know how to work your rod, line, and tippet to reenact or mimic and represent that exact behavior? Because if it's not moving in the natural way, the fish may not be fooled to eat it. Do you want to be a minimalist or do you plan on carrying a handful to several fly boxes, which in the long run can be very heavy and burden your shoulders, back, and pockets? Now that you have an idea of where and when you'll be fishing and what you want to represent, you need to go in and purchase your flies or purchase material to tie the flies. Now flies are usually, if not almost always, tied for the angler's perspective. When you look at the fly bins, you're looking at them from above. The fish are going to see these flies from the bottom, so you have to take that into consideration. How much are you willing to spend on a retail purchase? Flies in retail usually start around $2 a piece. Are you going in with a list of flies or a predetermined amount you are willing to spend? Or are you just going to walk in there and just pick them out willy-nilly? Sort of like a hungry person going to the grocery store. You're going to spend more if you are hungry and you don't know what you want to get. Now, several flies increase in price as the amount of detail and intricacy is required to tie them. Some kind of midges, about $2, they only take a couple seconds to tie. You also have the large saltwater patterns such as marlin and bluefish, which are going to be up to $30, $40 a piece. Are you referring to hatch charts, books, websites, magazines, and fly shop recommendations for your purchases? We once had a lady come in with a Dave Whitlock book and she wanted every single pattern mentioned in his book. 
It took several hours for us to pick them out, separate them, and box them up. We're not sure if she or her husband ever used them or needed all of them, but it was quite a daunting task for all of us, and we're pretty sure that you know, she didn't need all those flies. Her husband didn't need all of them, but as a fly shop, if she wanted to spend the money, it's our obligation at the end of the day to have income. So we sold her all the flies. Now, we didn't take advantage of her and tell her, hey, you, know, you only need five or six flies. Now, we could have sold her just the flies she needed for a particular area, but she was adamant that she needed every fly mentioned by Dave Whitlock in this book in the sizes, patterns, colors, everything to the T. We ended up selling this woman several hundred dollars worth of flies, which filled up a couple of shopping bags. Now, she didn't need all of these, per se, for fishing, but she wanted what exactly was in the book. So you can say, hey, maybe we took advantage of this woman and her credit card by selling her all these flies, but she was adamant that she wanted all of those flies in all of those sizes. And if she wanted that, we were going to sell it to her. So moving on, flies being purchased or tied. Flies are tied to represent something a fish eats. We present that fly near the fish in the hopes that we will fool the fish into thinking our imitation is natural. Some patterns are unique to a certain area as they were developed to imitate a specific item or solve a problem to a local angler on a specific body of water. Some flies are tied by famous tires and sold under their name by contracts to certain fly tying companies. And some flies work everywhere regardless of where they were developed, who developed them, or what species they were targeted for. A clouser minnow can work fresh in salt water anywhere in the world you go. Woolly buggers, if tied on a saltwater hook, can be fished in saltwater or freshwater. And then poppers, fresh in saltwater, equally, both productive. My analogy with flies and fly names has always been to compare them to sandwiches. Flies are like sandwiches. Someone comes up with the idea, another person adds something, maybe removes a piece, or improves the pattern and gives it a new name. Sandwiches have specific names, and the recipe and ingredients have to be consistent in order for that sandwich to be authentic like a Reuben. Let's go with a hamburger. Everyone knows hamburgers. Piece of ground beef on a bun. Well, somebody wanted to change that so they put a slice of cheese on the patty. So now you have a cheeseburger. And people went about eating these new cheeseburgers for a while until somebody had the idea to put a couple slices of bacon on there to improve it. So now you have the bacon cheeseburger. And so on and so on, the process continues. If that person added mushrooms, they have a mushroom burger. Add Swiss, you have a mushroom Swiss burger. Add a fried egg, you get a Gus burger. Add onion rings and barbecue sauce, it's known as a rodeo burger at the BK Lounge. If you substitute animal and get a vegetable burger, you get a veggie burger. To learn names of all these flies, I encourage you to view websites and read catalogs. They're going to be broken down in the descriptions I'm about to speak of next by pattern and what fish they're going to target. Some additional things to remember, flies pictured on the internet and print were most likely photographed under artificial light and will not appear that color to the fish under sunlight. Flies in stores are probably under fluorescent light and won't look the same outside. And fly materials look and act different when wet. Tiny bubbles will form on the feather pieces. Feathers will collapse when wet. Moving water will impart undulations and pulses. And what is puffy when dry will not be the same case when wet. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season 
but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Now that I've spoken about fly names, let's talk about hook sizes, something else you're going to encounter in the fly shop or online. Hook size name is inversely proportional to the size of the hook. As the size of the hook increases, the hook name decreases. A size 16 is about the length of a grain of rice. A size 6 is about the length of a wooden match. Flies generally go from 33 minute down to about 1, and then from 1 you get larger sizes, 1-0, If you look online, just Google fly fishing hook size chart, you should be able to get a good example. And hooks will also come in different shapes, sizes, and densities depending on what you're going to be fishing or what the fly is specifically made for. You have emerger hooks, scud hooks, caddis hooks, dry fly hooks, streamer hooks, popper hooks, egg hooks, saltwater hooks. Talking about all these different hooks, names, and sizes reminds me of the guy talking about nuts in uh, Best in Show, peanut, pie nut, and the one, of course, that got his mother upset, macadamia nut. So I've talked about fly names and the hooks they're going to be on. Let's talk about what the flies are made to represent. The majority of flies are tied to represent insects, be it terrestrials or aquatics, and fish, specifically bait fish. Bait fish is any fish that is being eaten by another fish. Basically, that eliminates everything but apex predators. I'm not sure why sculpins get all the attention in trout waters. There are plenty more fish out there. There are plenty of minnows and chubs and other species I will speak about in another podcast. I just don't get why sculpins are always depicted as the go-to trout streamer. There's also fish eggs and dead fish pieces, crustaceans such as shrimps, crabs, lobsters, crayfish, and daphnia, birds such as baby ducks and hummingbirds. The Discovery Channel, I think it was a David Attenborough series, had baby albatrosses being consumed by tiger sharks, and then baby swallows that might fall off bridges. Flies can also represent amphibians, frogs, and tadpoles, though tadpoles can be debatable such as bullfrogs because I've actually seen bullfrog tadpoles swim into trout and the trout don't do anything. It might do to a nasty flavor they have, and that includes frog tadpoles and toad tadpoles. You can also have mammals, lemmings, seals, and I'm not sure if anybody has fished with a fly to mimic an entire seal, but seal parts. You have mice and shrews, and I once saw a squirrel swim across a river. I was really hoping that a fish ate it, but it didn't get eaten. You have roundworms, such as earthworms, that fall in or are in the stream bank that get eroded. And you have aquatic worms, which spend their entire life in the water. Flatworms, such as leeches. There are mollusks, which are snails, clams, squid. Plants, such as fruits and seeds. And algae, such as the milkfish would eat. Reptiles, snakes and lizards and man-made items such as pellets and bread. I want to reiterate that flies are tied to be viewed from the top, the fly bin view, and the side, which are magazines, print, catalog. But fish see certain flies from below, the side, or a 360 degree view. Some natural flies are dorso-ventrally flattened, again that's pancake-shaped, like mayflies and stoneflies. Yet they're often tied on round hooks, pheasant tails and stoneflies. Organisms will display countershading, which is a dark top to a light bottom. That enables them to be camouflaged if a fish 
is looking up. The belly of the fish is going to be blended in with the sky. If a fish or bird is looking down on the natural, the dorsal part of the organism is going to blend in with the bottom. It'll be dark. So most fish should be tied with two colors, the bottom being light and the top being darker. Color changes will be based on available light and water conditions and clarity or turbidity. Light affects the color. Light penetrates to certain depths of the water, so flies at the top are not going to be the same color as flies at the bottom. There are flies that are tied to be specifically fished at night, and those might just have a completely dark body to form an outline or shape against the night sky. Then there's some that have very alternating colors, such as chartreuse and white, orange or blue, that are made to contrast each other to be seen on cloudy days. So the brighter the fly is, the more light it will reflect. Dark flies will absorb light, and then color combinations can be used to break up the search pattern that the fish is using to find an item based on the ambient conditions, cloudiness, turbidity. Some natural organisms reflect light and some refract light. If you have too much flash in your fly, it might scare the fish. If you don't have enough, you might not make that fish seem realistic. And the fish has to observe everything in the water to determine what is edible and what is not. If you look online on my YouTube page, you're going to see underwater video with pebbles, debris such as twigs, branches, all sorts of inedible objects floating down the river. And your fly has to be the one object that the fish sees to pick out and eat if you want to hook a fish. Now I want to break down flies into categories. The materials used in the object to be represented dictate the type of fly. I'm going to categorize flies based on where they are fished in the water column. Dry flies, wet flies, and streamers. Where they are found when you're purchasing them, online or in fly bins, and what they look like. Dry flies are fished on the top of the fish's field of view. The fish is looking up. The fish sees the silhouette or outline of the fly against the sky. Flotation is based on buoyancy of the materials being used. Dry flies float above the water or on the water's surface tension or by breaking hydrogen bonds and floating in the water's film. The materials need to spread out to increase surface area to distribute the weight. Let's say you wanted to walk on water like a water strider or whirligig beetle. Think your feet would have to be something like two kilometers long to be able to distribute your body weight. And for dry flies, they might sink eventually, so you need to add dressings such as desiccants made out of silica or a paste to keep your fly buoyant. Wet flies are fished anywhere between the surface of the water and the stream, river, or lake, ocean bottom. They're fished at and around the fish's field of view. The flies moving in the water column or drifting at the mercy of the current. I'm going to break wet flies down into weighted and unweighted. Unweighted wet flies might have to get the material waterlogged in order for them to sink if you want them fished below the surface. Some you might want to have fished just underneath the surface. Wet flies can be weighted by either cones or beads made of a variety of metals or plastics with different densities that are attached at the front of the hook. Other ways your fly might be weighted, it might be tied onto a heavier hook, there might be lead or a non-lead type of metal wrapped around the hook. There might be dumbbells or eyes tied onto your hook. And then there's extra things you would add on after you purchase your fly, such as split shot to get your fly down to where you need it to be. And you're gonna get those down to certain water depths based on where that fly is going to naturally occur. 
Heavier flies will sink to the bottom, which will be good for fast and deep water. You may have to adjust the weight you add on it to your fly if it's getting caught up too often on the bottom. Streamers are another type of wet fly. They're fished at and around the fish's field of view. They drift with the current or they're pulled through the water. They impart action or food suspended in the water column. They can be weighted and unweighted, the same type as with the nymphs or other wet flies. Beads or cones added to the fly for weight, weight tied on to the body of the hook. A already heavier fly hook to begin with or adding additional weight at the end which would be like split shot. So let's say you just walked into a fly shop and you need to purchase some flies. Flies are going to be organized in bins by the size of the hook it is tied on and what the fly is made to represent. And the category of the fly, be it dries or nymphs, nymphs being weighted and unweighted, streamers, midges, terrestrials, bass bugs, pike and muskie, salmon and steelhead, or saltwater. Dry flies are going to be all sorts of things from mayflies, caddisflies, stonefly adults, dragonflies, any sort of insect that lands on top of the water. Nymphs are going to be things such as mayfly nymphs, stonefly, caddisfly, truefly, and they're going to be the different larval stages that are getting from the stream bottom to the adult stage. Those would be pheasant tails, Kaufman's stonefly, Mike Mercer patterns, any type of midges, shrimp patterns that can also be caught in the water. Streamers would be anything such as woolly buggers. You can have clouser minnows in the mix. You can have bait fish, any size from Mickey fins and gray ghosts to large double bunnies. If there's a fish out there, somebody has probably tied something to match it. Midges are going to be things like midge adults, which will just be little floating puffs, which could be Griffith gnats, to midge larvae, which are also going to be your wet flies, zebra midges, thread midges, stuff I mentioned in my previous podcast. Terrestrials, grasshoppers, beetles, true bugs, they're going to fall in the water. You can have any type of inchworm pattern tied on foam or deer hair. You're going to find quick sight ants, quick sight beetles. Chernobyl ants, grasshoppers, club sandwiches, etc., etc. Bass bugs, big poppers, pencil poppers, fruit cocktails, Dahlberg divers, wiggle frogs, swimming frogs, any kind of large fly that's going to attract a bass. Bass will also take things such as large woolly buggers. I've caught them on all sorts of nymphs, from damselfly nymph to pheasant tails and little shad flies. Pike and musky flies, you're going to be able to differentiate those from others because they're tied with material that pike and musky won't destroy. Those are going to have synthetic hairs. They're going to be long. They're going to have epoxy on them, some flash in there, tied on a big hook. Salmon and steelhead are usually going to be more brightly colored, fuchsias, purples, chartreuses, oranges. They might be tied on black hooks. The hooks for these are going to be heavier and thicker because salmon and steelhead can weigh a lot. Salmon up to 30 pounds will bend a normal trout nymph hook. You'll have eggs. You will have different type of sucker spawns, spay patterns. Saltwater flies, you can have general saltwater flies such as clouser minnows and lefties deceivers. Flats flies for bonefish tarpon and permit. Crazy charlies, gotchas, del merkin crab patterns, shrimp patterns. Bluefish and striped bass again 
are gonna be mostly larger streamers and crab patterns. The streamers are gonna be tied like pike and musky flies, something that those fish can't destroy. Bluefish have notoriously sharp teeth. And then you have open water flies, such as sailfish and billfish patterns. Uh, out there you can find Dorado, Dorado you, poppers that you're just gonna throw at any kind of flotsam floating in the water. Jacks, Trevally, if you wanna go after grouper, whatever. There's a fly that you need. I'm sure a fly shop has it. If not, find somebody like myself who can tie one for you to match the pattern you need. So now that you're in a fly shop and you're seeing these patterns, they're gonna be in drawers and bins based on those different characteristics. And you're gonna probably walk around with some little tweezers and a little plastic cup or something to put them in and make sure you can separate them out if they're based on different prices, make it easier for the person ringing you up. Be careful not to poke yourself. These flies are sharp. Now I'm gonna talk about the materials used in tying them. I'm gonna break these flies down by natural material, synthetic material, and a combination of each. Then I'm gonna go into more depth in my next podcast on fly tying about all these different materials used. Natural materials are gonna be things such as hair, fur, and feathers, and they're all made of a protein called keratin. These already have colors represented in nature and would be considered traditional because that's what people used back in the day before they had synthetics. Some of those materials may be illegal to come by now if the animal's endangered or on a list where it's been protected. Some of these have even become extinct, so be careful when you're buying materials, make sure you know that it's something legal. Some organisms maintain waterproof hair, fur, and feathers. We're gonna call that hydrophobic, hydro meaning water, and phobic meaning fear of. These hair, fur, and feathers are made waterproof by oily gland secretions, which provide for buoyant materials. Organisms that live in and around water, such as beavers, muskrats, and ducks, are gonna have waterproof fur, hair, and feathers. Animals that do not live in these areas that do not have this oily gland secretion are gonna have hydrophilic materials, meaning they will absorb water, hydro meaning water and philic the love of. Rabbits, you tie stuff with rabbit fur, it's gonna sink. Mammal hair, moose and deer, tend to have hollow hairs, which traps air and keeps them warm because mammals are warm-blooded. You have to maintain your internal body temperature. To do that, they will prop up their hairs and trap air inside of them and around them. These little air pockets will keep your material floating until they become waterlogged. Bass bugs are one example. And I once read that a certain mayfly species requires the urine-stained hair of a vixen, and I Googled it. I'm not sure if that's the same author that came up in the Google search, but materials can be a wide variety. I also once read, it may have been the same book, I'm not sure, a certain, I believe it was a Cahill, required the fuzz off of a ram's scrotum. So there are natural materials out there and people get creative with them. Not sure how they figure those patterns out or how they got them, but uh, you know, they're out there. Some of the more sought after patterns are gonna have materials from pheasants, peacocks, especially peacock, tail feathers, we call that hurl, H-E-R-L, chicken butt feathers known as marabou, rooster neck feathers, the oily stuff might be a CDC feather or col de canard, those are going to be a couple of tiny little feathers from the butt of a duck that are used to tie certain caddis patterns. There's a variety out there when you start looking at fly tie material, you'll see they are all sorts of crazy materials, you'll see rabbit faces, you'll see deer faces, and we used to tell people that rabbits would shed their faces twice a year and that the farmers would go around and pick up these rabbit masks 
and they're uh, definitely creeped out some girls in our fly shop back in the day. The next type of flies are going to be synthetics. Those are going to be tied from things such as foam, rubber, mylar, yarn, plastic, and all sorts of crazy products you can find in craft stores. Synthetic flies offer more durability the super clouser, which has super hair tied on it, compared to a natural clouser, which has bucktail. Synthetics float better, including the Chernobyl ant, because closed cell foam has several tiny air pockets and does not really become saturated with water. Synthetic flies have an unlimited amount of creativity. The more creative the tire, the more interesting patterns they can come up with. Synthetic flies also give an increased variety of colors, shapes, and sizes, and a combination of all of those. They yield creative alternatives to the naturals. I like to use synthetic paintbrush bristles as mayfly tails rather than using something such as moose hair. And modern technology gives us new products each year. I always look forward to getting catalogs in the spring and finding out what's new. And Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Find them in my craft stores as well. I'm known to go to the local Michaels and AC Moore after work on Fridays and just sniff around and see what's new, what's different. I'll go to Home Depot there's different types of foam there, paintbrushes, you name it. It's all about how creative you are and what you can find to tie the flies with. And you might start noticing those patterns in the store that other people are tying are also available in the shop so you can recreate them yourself. The last category I'm going to talk about is the combination. You're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting synthetic and naturals in one fly. An example would be a flashback pheasant tail. You're getting the natural materials from the pheasant and from peacocks but then you're gonna mix in a piece of iridescent mylar over the thorax. You get a synthetic fly with natural parts to it. So now you know what flies are made of, let's talk about fly properties. Flies should be first off durable. Durability is based on how they are tied, the materials used, and if they will take a beating when you start fishing them. Do you wanna be able to use your flies again or are these one-time purchases? Who's tying your flies? Are they locally tied or are they outsourced to other countries? How much effort are these people putting into your flies? Do they want them to last? Are they tying them quickly to make a quota for the day? How are they wrapping the thread? How do they finish the fly? Are there knots, head cements, lacquers used to seal the knots so they don't come undone? What kind of materials are they using? Are they using cheap material versus good ones, cheap feathers, cheap hooks that are gonna bend and break and rust? Or are they using expensive hooks that are extremely sharp, won't bend, and won't rust? Does the fly smell? Some flies are made with different materials, the head cement versus human scent of the person who tied them. What about the fly shop? Are they using cedar blocks to keep bugs away from the flies? Because bugs will eat your flies. Are they using mothballs to keep the flies away? That naphthalene smell sticks to your flies and may make them unpalatable to fish. So let's say you've bought some flies or you just finished tying some up. Now you gotta fish them. Things to think about. Food items do not go towards fish on purpose. They are trying to swim away from them. Have you ever seen people in the movies run towards Godzilla? No, they run away from Godzilla. They don't want to get eaten. Most flies are tied in a static manner versus flies that suggest movement. 
I won't fish in Mickey Finn or Black Ghost because the parts don't move. It's a static material. I like to tie things with rubber legs, marabou, zonker strips, which are rabbit strips, cross-cut rabbit. These things undulate and pulse and move in the water. They impart natural action. I do not want my flies to look like a deer in headlights. I want them to move. I want them to be having action based on me stripping the fly in, the wind throwing them into the water, the water moving them, the different currents in the water. I want them to have action and move. I want them to be alive. Now some organisms, they land in the water and they're not gonna move, such as grasshoppers. Well, I tie on rubber legs to impart action. Maybe it's just kind of nervous and twitching in the water. I don't want my flies just to be seen by the fish. I want them to be heard. Fish have something called a lateral line. I'll get into depth with that in another podcast on ichthyology. But fish don't just see things, they feel them. Sound travels far in water. If you were ever a kid in the swimming pool in the summer and somebody had their watch and they beeped it, you could hear that from the other side of the pool. Sound molecules are closer together in water and they vibrate next to each other, so sound travels farther. Fish can pick up on these, so if they don't see the organism, they might feel it. So when you throw a fly in at night and you're stripping it, the fish might not see it, but they can feel the water. It's hitting their lateral line and they're detecting it. Undulating motion, I think, was called Good Body by Vince Marinero. Things should be moving in the water, not just static. And my bacon fly, I think, is the culmination of that for me. I tie that with rabbit strips, rooster feathers, rubber legs. It has to be tied on a certain way, and I'm quite particular on how I fish that fly. It's not for everybody, and it's heavy. And speaking of heavy flies, I think I forgot to mention this earlier, don't buy flies you can't throw with your rod. Don't buy big weighted conehead woolly buggers if you're throwing a two or three weight line. Your rod does not have the capability of doing that. And an example would be a four weight noodley rod I fished in Colorado last year with one of my big bacon flies in split shot. I couldn't cast it properly and that's why it got stuck in my arm. You can see the video of them taking the fly out on YouTube. So you're gonna cast and retrieve the fly differently to mimic how that object would appear and act in nature. Strip your fly in with different speeds and actions. Jerk it. Pretend that you've got a bird on your rod tip and you wanna get that bird off. Shake your rod tip. Are you drifting with the current? Are you using a fly that mimics chum in the water? What about migrating insects that are all over the water and maybe drifting down? Dislodged insects from the riverbank. What about eggs that have been laid by a female salmon and are drifting downstream? They're not going to be in the top of the water column. They're going to be in the bottom because they're denser than water and they're bouncing along until they get caught in a rock. Some mayflies and caddisflies and stoneflies move along the bottom of the water. If you're fishing a particular pattern, you want it to be at the bottom, not the top. Also, fish tend to be at the bottom of the water because the current is slower there and they need to maintain a certain metabolic ratio of not burning calories. Do you want your fly to splat on the water, plop on the water? Do you want it to drop from vegetation? Do you want it delicately to land like a mayfly? Do you want to rip your streamer across a hole? Do you want your fly to skip across the water, maybe off of a dock piling or a pontoon boat? How you fish your fly is going to matter. If you're not fishing it right, the fish will think it's wrong in the water. They're not going to see it as a natural and they're not going to bite it. You need to fool the fish, so pay attention when you see naturals out there so you can throw your fly and impart action to make it realistic. If you want your fly to move around a lot, how are you going to tie it on? If you want a bait fish to jerk around left to right up and down, maybe you don't want to use an approved clinch knot. Maybe you want to use a surgeon's loop, 
a surgeon's loop is gonna put the knot a couple inches above your fly. Now I like that, for one, I can put split shot on and it's gonna stop at the knot, not down on the fly. The fly can move left and right up and down because it's not tied directly to the line. The tippet you're using also is gonna matter. Thicker tippet will not allow the fly to move. Thinner tippet will, but then you have to weigh in the options. Thicker tippet, it's thicker. It might not move the same in the water. The fish might see it, but you're not gonna break off as fast. Thinner tippet moves easier in the water. It's harder for the fish to see. It might break off more, so you might lose more flies. Toothy fish require heavier nylon mono or fluorocarbon, or even worse for their teeth, you gotta tie on metal. Metal shock tippet, it's a little piece that is gonna be between the tippet and the fly. It's gonna be about as thin as a guitar string, and the fish can't bite through that. Also, are you tying on more than one fly? We call that tandem rigs. How are you going to attach more than one fly? Well, I like to take the large fly, the lead one, as I mentioned in the last podcast, tie that on with a improved clinch knot, take about 18 to 24 inches of smaller tippet, use an improved clinch knot to tie that to the bend of the hook, and then I will probably tie on a improved surgeon's knot for the lead fly to the bottom fly. That bottom fly now has more access and movement in the water based on its tippet to eye of the hook configuration. One of the more important things you can do for yourself and the fish is to debarb your hook before you start fishing it. You can do that after you purchase it. You can look specifically for barbless flies when you buy the flies or when you're tying your flies, you should smash it down before you leave the house. Fish don't have hands, they cannot remove the hook. A good hook set is all you need to keep that fly from coming out. Keep slack out of the line and that'll keep the fly in place. Getting a barbed hook in you hurts. Look at my YouTube. I've gone to the ER twice. I've had fish hooks go through the tip of my finger and out the other end. That also hurts. It also will ruin your clothes. You don't want to have a nice fleece out there and get a barbed hook in it and then you have to rip a hole in your fleece to get it out. You ever get a fly in shoelaces? That's not fun to get out either. Getting a barbed hook in you or your clothing can ruin your day. This is the section where I speak of fly maintenance. Keeping your flies sharp is important. If that hook is dull, it's not going to penetrate the fish's mouth bones. Some have thicker mouths than others. Tarpon have extremely hard mouths. You need a sharp hook to get through that. If your hook, as the common saying goes, cannot scratch your thumbnail, it's too dull. You can keep files with you so you don't get a dull point on your hook. If they're dull, you might just not want to fish them at all. Don't let your flies rust or rot. Make sure you dry them after each use. You can use that with desiccants in your fly box. You can take them out and let air go over them. Whereas we're steelhead fishing every fall, we like to put them in front of Joe's heater, let the hot air blow over them. Flies will rust. If they do, you just lost a, a lot of money on flies that you can no longer fish. So how do you want to store your flies? I prefer foam fly boxes. They're lightweight. You can write your name and number on them. They're easy to find if you drop them in the water. They're going to float. Hopefully you can catch them before they go downstream. There are spring-loaded boxes. There are some very expensive ones. There are some not so expensive. Those are good for your dry flies. You can keep the hackle and the other moving parts on them from getting crushed inside a box. Waterproof boxes have O-rings around the edge to keep water from getting in there. You're going to pay a little bit more for those, but it's a good investment to keep your purchases from getting dry rotted or rusted. Compartments, you can find ones that adjust and don't. I like adjustable ones because if I tie flies that are longer, I can move the 
Compartments down one section, make a three inch slot big enough for a four inch fly. Keep your flies organized. I don't know how Tom does it, but his flies in his boxes are exactly one, two, three millimeters apart. It's as if he used a micrometer and just went in there. I don't get it. But if you keep your flies organized, you don't have to go digging in your backpack, hip pack, chest pack, whatever. I keep my fly boxes organized, the foam one specifically, by writing what pattern or target species I'm going for with the flies in that box. So I'll write shad, striped bass, saltwater, bonefish or flats, damselflies, because I carry one box specifically for damselflies, dry flies, I'll have one for nymphs, one for streamers, one for salmon and steelhead, etc. And if I can, I will combine all those into one box and travel lightly if possible, but that doesn't always work. I always end up carrying too many flies than I need. As I mentioned earlier, the best way to learn the names of all these flies is to get catalogs. Most companies offer free catalogs. Look them up online, give them a call, get some free catalogs in the mail, and be sure to spend some money with them. They made the effort to send it to you, try and buy something. Look online, plenty of companies such as Umqua, Orvis, L.L. Bean have really good fly web pages. To summarize this podcast on flies, I told you what flies are. I've talked about realistic versus impressionistic. Your needs as an angler, be it quality of the flies, where they're tied, how you want them to last, how to purchase flies and where you're going to encounter them in the store, bins, drawers, etc., and websites. I talked about hook sizes, fly names, my sandwich analogy, fly categories, be it dry, wet, streamer, and then synthetics, naturals, and combinations, fly properties, how you want that fly to move in the water and what you're going to do to make sure that fly moves properly. I've talked about fly maintenance and storage. And now I just want to go off on a rant that I don't know why flies have googly eyes on them if they're dry. There's several flies that are tied with extra parts, googly eyes, whiskers, things that the fish doesn't see. They just add extra weight to the fly and I don't know what they need them for. My mouse patterns are just a tail and a body and they catch fish. I don't know why you need whiskers, ears, eyes, other accoutrement that just make the fly heavier. Cut those off, you can fish those flies on a lighter line. I don't understand why some people insist on carrying exact patterns when they go places like the Shenandoah National Park. These fish don't see food that often. You do not need a size 14 Hendrickson, a size 12 Blue Wing Olive, a size 16 Black Caddis. If a fish doesn't see food that often, it's going to pounce on anything you throw at it. Your flies up there should be things that are cheap, easy to see when you catch them in the trees behind you, and the fly hook should be positioned where you're going to be able to catch a fish on the first strike. Something like a clink hammer. Floats high, the hook is at a position where the fish can bite it. You don't need a whole lot of flies to go up there. So I think that about concludes my podcast on flies. If you need more information, you can go to robsnowwhite.com and click on flies and fly tying for pictures. And if you want to order flies from me, you can do it there. You can also go to podcasts, the link, click it. You can find this podcast and many others. If you'd like to support the fly fishing podcast, please go to dragonflyfishing.com. Buy a beer lanyard, buy a hat, buy a visor, buy a t-shirt, buy a half lanyard. Let's make a combo. Let's buy a beer fly fishing lanyard. I'm sure there's lots of things I forgot to mention, so when I remember those and I write them down, I will probably record this podcast again. I will let you know, so keep checking iTunes and my website. And until next time, I wish you good hatches.
I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.